From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. The horse roads turn into wagon roads, turn into streets, turn into freeways. There are a lot of reasons that so many of us live in cities. Money, culture, community, just to name a few. But as appealing as city life can be, we all need some quiet time in the mountains. Running for the hills when you need a break from the wear and tear of society. It's an American tradition, especially in the West. We recognize some of the cost of our busybody life, and that's why we go to the country. But we rarely realize just how much the pace and organization of life today has separated us from the past, how much the way we see the world today makes it hard to, well, even see what we are looking at. Even in California, with some of the most breathtaking natural beauty in the world, we can find it hard to connect to the natural world. And even though California has a dramatic history, it can be hard to detect or appreciate it. So in today's show, we will spend some of our time in California in its natural wonders, in its history, to explore what we've lost in our modern sensibility. We will explore California and try not to simply take it for granted. For the Stanford Storytelling Project in 90.1, KZSU Stanford, I'm Bonnie Swift. Stay with us. Today we have two stories and one poem about the California High Sierra. Our first story is about two young road trippers who travel from San Francisco to the Sierra Nevada on the historic trail of the Buffalo Soldiers in search of a lost chapter in early California history. I was one of those travelers and the other was my friend Justine Lai. Our second story is about the people today who work as guides in the backcountry of Yosemite. Storytelling producer Killeen Hansen tells us what happens when you wake up with the sunrise and set out after breakfast to climb the nearest peak with nothing but whiskey in your water bottle. First up, Justine Lai and yours truly follow the historic trail of the Buffalo Soldiers from San Francisco to Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks. Along the way, we discover how the booms and busts of California culture have largely erased history from our physical landscape, and how we, with our modern need for speed, convenience, and constant stimuli, have compromised our capacity to experience beauty in the way that we might have a hundred years ago, when life moved more slowly. In a car, we inevitably miss things, especially things that move more slowly or not at all. Like a nail. That's right, a nail. Believe it or not, by the end of this piece, you will behold in wonderment with us a lonely, old, rusty nail. We are back in front of the Booker T. Washington tree, here to see the nail. Do you see it, Bonnie? 
So if you get up close enough and look up, you can see this one kind of rusty nail just sticking out of the tree. She can't even take a picture of it. It held the sign that originally said Booker T. Washington Tree. It's October 24th, 2008. We've been dispatched on the historic trail of the Buffalo Soldiers. We're going to travel from the Presidio of San Francisco to Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks. My name is Justine Lai, and I'm a park ranger for the National Park Service. And I'm Bonnie Swift, Deputy Director of the Stanford Storytelling Project. We were sent on this mission as part of our jobs. We were dispatched to uncover the forgotten story of the Buffalo Soldiers in the California parks. Little do most people know that before there was a park service, the Army guarded our first national parks. Our first rangers were actually soldiers. I'd already covered much of our itinerary as part of my job at the park service. Honestly, I expected to see exactly what I had already seen before. Fruit stands, gas stations, the occasional historic plaque. Except this time Bonnie would be there, so it would be more fun. But it would take longer. The trip would take longer because we'd be taking the historic Buffalo Soldier route instead of the faster freeways. It was the perfect time of year for a more leisurely road trip, especially to the Sierra Nevada. We loaded up my little white pickup truck and headed south, bound first for Yosemite. But along the way, the road took some curious turns. We didn't at all find what we expected. History and that California landscape both revealed themselves in unexpected ways. It turns out that when you see California through the lens of history, you see a lot more than first meets the eye. Uh, the Presidio of San Francisco has been a military post since, I think, 1776. At first by the Spanish, then by the Mexican, Mexico, and then by the U.S. So, um, we're just leaving San Francisco, and now we're, we're going to hit the road. After the Civil War, African Americans were allowed to enlist in the Army for the first time. Congress established four all-black regiments. Legend has it that the Native Americans gave them the name we often use now. They called them Buffalo Soldiers, because their hair was like a buffalo's woolly coat. In Native American culture, the buffalo is a powerful symbol, so the nickname Buffalo Soldier was a respectful one. If you've heard of the Buffalo Soldiers, it's probably because you've heard the Bob Marley song, which has to do with the Buffalo Soldiers who fought in the Indian Wars. The Indian Wars were in the late 19th century, when the United States conquered the frontier. The Buffalo Soldiers fought the natives, pursued bandits, built roads, scouted, and mapped. In 1898, the Spanish-American War broke out, so Buffalo Soldiers next went to Cuba. They fought alongside Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders in the Battle of San Juan Hill, the bloodiest and most famous battle of the Spanish-American War. Roosevelt and the Rough Riders became famous afterwards. The Buffalo Soldiers did not. But they continued to serve as segregated regiments. When an insurrection started up in the Philippines, the Buffalo Soldiers went there. When they came back in 1902, they came through San Francisco, 
and were given a new peacetime assignment. It was garrison duty at the Presidio and guard duty at the newly created national parks. And this is the chapter that most people don't know about. The Army protected the parks every summer from 1891 to 1913. And for three of those years, 1899, 1903, and 1904, they were buffalo soldiers. The soldiers on duty in the parks were literal trailblazers. They made maps and put out wildfires. But they weren't just dealing with nature. They were also monitoring the settlers. Back then, the government had set aside these huge tracts of land for preservation, but there was no actual law to protect them. The unknown chapter is a story of transformation. The Buffalo Soldiers went from being warriors on the frontier to stewards of our first parks. When the army units patrolled the national park, they were not only protecting the land, but protecting the very idea that it held the park. Because a new concept has to be defended. Right, otherwise people are like, hey, why are you saving all this land? There'll be gold in them hills, or, you know, some, you know, oh, look at those giant trees. Wow, I happen to be a logger. The Buffalo Soldiers left San Francisco in May and headed south on El Camino Real. At Gilroy, they turned east, went over Pacheco Pass to Madera. At Madera, the troops split. Those headed for Yosemite went northeast to Wawona, and the troops headed for Sequoia went down the San Joaquin Valley, through Fresno, and over to Three Rivers. On their trip, they covered about 20 miles each day. There would be 100 soldiers on horseback, followed by mule trains and wagons. They headed down the dusty El Camino Real south to Gilroy. El Camino Real is Spanish for the Royal Road, or the King's Highway. It runs north to south, connecting California's 21 missions from Sonoma down to San Diego. Construction on El Camino Real started 325 years ago in 1683, while Europe was in the midst of a renaissance and California was becoming an appendage of the Spanish Empire. Spain is long gone from California, but the missions are still around, and so are portions of El Camino Real. It's no longer the main route. At first, we had a hard time finding it. We're looking for um, El Camino, because apparently the, the Buffalo Soldiers took El Camino Real all the way south to Gilroy, right? Yeah, south to Gilroy. South to Gilroy. And um, El Camino still exists, and we're going to find it eventually, but we, we're in a maze of freeways, and we can't find it anywhere. Horse roads turn into wagon roads, turn into streets, turn into freeways. As we drove down El Camino, I noticed all the new construction and thought about all the changes taking place. Normally, driving down the road, you don't think too much about how things used to be. But when you're following someone's footsteps, knowing that they were in the exact same place about a hundred years ago, you can't help but wonder what this place must have been like when they passed through. Things have certainly changed, especially just south of San Francisco. We're looking for a Walgreens. The site of the Walgreens is the first soldiers' uh, encampment site. They stopped in San Bruno, and they stopped at a place called Uncle Tom's Cabin. <gasps> Walgreens! There's, where, where? Right there. Where? Right. Where? Right here. Where? No way. Oh, here it is! We are at Walgreens. 
Uncle Tom's Cabin was also a business known as, I believe, 14 Mile House. All these places back then just called themselves based on their distance from the nearest major city. Driving south on El Camino, we passed through a long stretch of strip malls, old hotels with faded neon signs, adult video shops, TV repair stores, Goodwills, Starbucks, Chinese takeout. What used to be a series of distinct townships has now become a sprawling suburban landscape. There's an article from the San Francisco Call, February 19, 1900, that doesn't describe the army going to Uncle Tom's cabin, but a member of the San Mateo County Hunt. Okay, so well, the headline is, Ride Over San Bruno Foothills. A wide detour was made into the foothills towards the ocean. The hounds in their field were visible for nearly an hour to spectators. This was due to the open nature of the country. That's the funny thing about this stretch of the, I guess, the Santa Clara Valley, is that it's all one big sprawling mass, whereas before it was, it was separate distinctive stops, like pass by nothing, then all of a sudden here's the roadhouse, mm-hmm. you know? Now it's just a Walgreens. It's something kind of sad about that. He said someday the moon will reach out to the sun. This isn't to say that all is lost. There are still signs of times past. Somehow, if something looked or felt historic, our mood would suddenly lift. After most of the afternoon poking along the old wagon road, we arrived in San Jose. This is the first place where we had real evidence, uh, a newspaper article that documented the time when the Buffalo soldiers came through. They likely camped at the old fairgrounds, known as Agricultural Park. site of San Jose's racetrack. It also had a velodrome, which is where bicycle races took place. Right here? In this general area. And now there's a pizza hut. Yeah, we're parked next to a pizza hut. I'm going to read some newspaper articles that relate to the army being in San Jose on their way to the parks. And the first is from the San Jose Evening News of May 22nd, 1903. So 1903, this was the year the Buffalo Soldiers of the 9th Cavalry were on their way to Yosemite and Sequoia. Here it goes. Colored Troopers in San Jose. Troop M, 9th U.S. Cavalry, passed through this city this morning en route for the Yosemite Valley, where they will be stationed for this summer on patrol duty. The troop is made up of colored soldiers in command of white officers. The company was mounted on spirited horses and made a soldierly appearance. These are the sort of accounts we have of the Buffalo Soldiers when they were on the road. The briefest of brief mentions in the newspaper. There's no real record of what they were like as individuals, no letters, diaries, or photographs, and the army records are notoriously sparse with words. We began to wonder, how could we recover a history that was never documented in the first place? But we did know something about one Buffalo soldier, Charles Young. Over the course of our journey, I really came to appreciate him. Charles Young was the son of former slaves in Kentucky, the third African-American to graduate from West Point. Even though the units were entirely African-American, more often than not, the officers were white. 
The big exception to this, of course, is Charles Young of the 9th Cavalry. And so when he led troops in 1903, to, specifically to Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park, he was the acting superintendent, so the first African-American superintendent of the park. Purple clouds turn scarlet in the setting sun Where sagebrush turns to live oak and the whitetail run The air is cool as music when the day is done Slowly we made our way through the last of the big boxes and straight roads and into the countryside. And slowly, a feeling of incredible relief settled in as we meandered into the hills. We arrived just before dark at our first camping spot. The Buffalo soldiers stopped for the night in the same place, sort of. At the time, it was the San Luis Ranch. Now San Luis Ranch is underwater, flooded by what is now the San Luis Reservoir. That afternoon, we drove on Highway 152, which goes east, through the dry, grassy hills over Pacheco Pass. The buffalo soldiers passed through this area on horseback. They probably enjoyed a more leisurely pace. We missed a stop on the way. But it wasn't our fault. It was called the... Bell Station Restaurant. At the time, it was a hotel. It was the place to stop in Pacheco Pass. But it was on the other side of the freeway, and this freeway is more just like a narrow country road where everybody's going really fast and there was no way that we could really turn into it. Everyone's got somewhere to go, we're all in cars, we're going 65 miles an hour, plus there are enormous big rigs. So we had to go past. I think I remember this one specific moment where we were driving right past Bell Station and there's this enormous, so these are like soft golden California hills, just as you imagine them with these kind of really beautiful oak trees on them. And then all of a sudden, out of these hills is this amazing sort of granite rock. And with sort of the sunset light on it, looks kind of like a gem. But we didn't see it for more than like 30 seconds. And like I was driving, so I couldn't really look at it. But I imagine that if you're riding a horse over this pass, you become very familiar with those things as you go. And you kind of get to appreciate them. Driving all day up the sand, walking, turn west again. At the same time, we're pretty lucky. It's terribly convenient to have a car. We figured that we can cover about six times as much ground in one day than the Buffalo Soldiers could have in the same time. But the difference between riding a horse and driving a car is more than just a matter of speed. It's a matter of mentality. Justine and I had this aching feeling that we were missing out by going so fast. Missing out on something that we never had. Something we couldn't even find a word for. The stars are coming out. Or the stars are always there, but we're able to see them.
In Los Banos, our recorder ran out of battery, and we couldn't log anything for the rest of the day. For the record, we passed through Dos Palos, Fireball, Madeira, Raymond, Crooks Ranch, and Wawona. These are all the places where we think the Buffalo soldiers camped on their way to Yosemite. When we stopped at each place, we imagined what it would have been like to camp there 100 years ago. Sometimes it looked like it would have been pretty nice. Sometimes it was dry, hot, flat, pretty miserable. We arrived in Yosemite Valley in the late afternoon, fatigued. But it was a good kind of fatigue. The kind of fatigue that comes after a whole day out on the road. Yosemite in the early fall is amazing. The maples are yellow, and the road that winds along the river is like a tunnel of gold. At that point, we checked in at the Rangers Club. Our duties seemed less important than enjoying the park and the pure mountain air. The further we got along the trail, the more at ease we became. We took the hybrid shuttle to Curry Village for a microbrew. So I was just commenting to myself that we hadn't talked about the Buffalo Soldiers all day. (laughs) Even just between the two of us. But there are these deeper things that are at play, I think, that are happening when we're following this trail. Like, even the emotions we feel, like, we'd enter a certain stretch of land and be like, oh, this must have been a hard day. Oh, man, it's so dusty. There's no scenery, you know. Like, ooh. You know, we felt for them. You know, even if we didn't talk about them in a very, you know, cold and distinctly historical approach, I think we felt a certain kinship. The next morning, we drove back towards the historic Army headquarters at Wawona. But the road to Glacier Point forks off along the way, so we turned left and started the climb to the hills above the valley where we'd stayed the night before. We went there because it's one of the most well-known, quintessential spots in the park. For anybody who's never been to Yosemite, this is where a lot of the sort of famous Yosemite photographs have been taken. There's this kind of rock that juts out over a cliff. John Muir pretty much summed it up when he said, Yosemite Park is a place of rest, a refuge from the roar and dust and weary, nervous, wasting work of the lowlands, in which one gains the advantages of both solitude and society. The view of Half Dome was somehow calming. Not to say that I don't feel anxiety in nature. One aspect of the sublime is awe, but the other is terror. Regardless, the landscape is so vast that you don't know if you're amazed or if you're afraid. But you're changed. Shelton Johnson is a park ranger at Yosemite. He said something similar. And this is not just philosophical mumbo-jumbo. Anyone that's ever been to Yosemite for any length of time knows of the power of this place to change the way that you look at the world. In a way, though, the, the big box of the lowlands and the big rocks of the mountains are two parts of the same big American whole. The shopping mall and the untouched tracts of wilderness land Both are central tenets of American culture. But the two environments feel so different, it creates this strange disjunction in the way we understand the very land we live on. When the Buffalo Soldiers were in Yosemite, they saw essentially the same landscape we were seeing. There was a certain comfort in knowing that nothing has really changed here in a while. 
The beauty of nature is more than just spiritually uplifting. It links us also with our cultural heritage. In 1903, John Muir and President Theodore Roosevelt met in Yosemite. There's this famous photograph of them taken from Glacier Point. Roosevelt is short, round, and proud. He looks right at the camera. Muir is tall, wispy, and has an air of a mystic. He gazes off towards the horizon. Roosevelt was a president of the Progressive Era, when conservation was on the top of the national agenda. Back then, there was a debate about setting aside land for future generations. Some, like Roosevelt, wanted to use some of the frontier for natural resources and set aside some as wilderness. Others, like Muir, saw nature not as a pile of potential resources, but as a powerful, spiritually uplifting force, and they sought to protect it. This famous meeting of the minds sparked the beginning of 20th century civic environmentalism. The early conservation movement was not just made up of Muir's and Roosevelt's. Muir had the philosophy and Roosevelt had the political power. But when it came down to it, who did the dirty work? When Roosevelt met Muir in 1903 in that kind of famous meeting of the minds, you'll see that photo of them here at Glacier Point. One thing that you don't really hear about is that the Buffalo Soldiers that year, 1903, were the ones, uh, they were the ones in Yosemite protecting the park. They were the ones escorting him. They don't appear in any photographs from that event because it was more important that Roosevelt was photographed with VIPs and maybe the more glamorous naturalists than the, you know, the soldiers. But they were here. Most people are surprised to hear the history of the army and the parks. When we think of soldiers, we think of combat. But the early 1900s were a different era, and the army was a different army. It was a different era. You know, it was a, a whole different military in those days, over 100 years ago. I mean, West Point... Uh, was established by by Thomas Jefferson for the for the whole purpose of of nation building. I mean, he wanted to build a cadre of of engineers to help build the country, and so uh, you know, the latter half of the 19th century, West Point actually had the the greatest school, if not the only, but the greatest school of engineering uh, in the United States. It was better than Harvard. It was better than Yale. I mean, it was it was the school to go to if you wanted to be an engineer. And so, a West Point officer not only was skilled in military science. A West Point officer also would have been skilled in geology and, and botany and, and would have known about soils and would have known about other things that necessarily would have tied into the whole idea of building a road or a community, a town, in what had once been wilderness or just the frontier. So it made perfect sense to have soldiers brought to Yellowstone and Sequoia and Yosemite because that's what they did. That's what they were used to doing. That's what they were trained to do. You know, build, build infrastructure. Wawona was our primary Buffalo Soldier destination in Yosemite. This little spot along the Merced River was the first Army headquarters of the park. Back then, it was called Camp A.E. Wood. And Wood was the first military superintendent in 1891. But today, there's no sign of the headquarters. Instead, it's a loop of the Wawona campground. But across the river, we were hoping to find the most significant Buffalo Soldier contribution to Yosemite, 
we were hoping that it might still exist. It was, it's an arboretum. It's an arboretum that uh, was built on uh, the South Fork of the Merced um, down near in the Wawona area and is considered to be the first museum in the national park system. It's not just specific and important to Yosemite, but it actually is important uh, in, in, a, in the whole scope of the national park system. We think we might have found the spot where the arboretum was, but it's really hard to tell. And we're looking for signs of old trail work or, you know, any signs of kind of landscaping. But what we found was a very rocky but beautiful hill and a very flat spot. Not a very flat spot, but a, a more flat spot with more soil that really shows no signs of uh, ever having been manicured. It's an ideal place to build a garden, really. Yes, it encourages quiet contemplation of botanical life. We didn't really find anything. I was kind of disappointed. I really expected to see something, an old sign or a belt buckle, anything. But by then, this was becoming the story of our trip. And we started to accept that we probably wouldn't find many tangible traces of the Buffalo Soldiers and their time in the parks. It seemed even more important that we continue to trace their steps. And with that, we were on our way to Sequoia to find out where the other half of the Buffalo Soldiers had gone after they split at Madeira. We were also going to find out more about Charles Young, captain of the 9th Cavalry and superintendent of the park in 1903. Okay, so we're just leaving Raymond, California. We just got cold drinks, bottled water at oh the Frontier Inn. It looks like some sort of general store. We are back in Madeira. Well, it's 5.03 p.m. on Sunday, and we are in Fresno, population 481,035. Well, we made it to this little town. After 10 hours driving on small country roads, we arrived that night in Sequoia National Park. As its name suggests, there are a lot of giant sequoias in Sequoia National Park. The giant sequoia, it turns out, was widespread in the age of dinosaurs. But now only a few pockets of this tree remain, tucked into special microclimates high in the California Sierra. Something about their thick trunks and heavy limbs, they look like the ancestors of a more evolved and elegant tree. They do have an uncanny dinosaur quality about them. So we're standing in front of the Colonel Young tree. It kind of looks to me like a big elephant foot or something. But they're really big around, and they're really chunky. They don't have branches for about 40 or 50 feet. I am, I'm Ward Eldridge. I'm the museum curator uh, for Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. And yeah, the Charles Young tree was, uh, a, a tree named for Charles Young was, was proposed in 1903 uh, when Young was acting superintendent here at the end of his season. The idea was broached by local citizens that a tree should be named for him, and he he felt his career was too fresh. He, was, he had not accomplished enough yet. 
Charles Young accomplished more in one summer than the officers before him had done in three years. Building the first road into Giant Forest was so important that the park continues to recognize this accomplishment today. Just finishing the road into Giant Forest was a big deal. The white crew building the road worked under the charge of an African-American officer, so this road was a diplomatic feat, to put it mildly. As one of three African-Americans who had then graduated from West Point, Young had to overcome many a hardship. He later said that the worst he could wish for his enemy would be to make him a black man and send him to West Point. Because keep in mind, you know, with the racial attitudes as they existed at the time, uh, a lot of Euro-American soldiers would not have been comfortable seeing an African-American uh, captain and then major and then, you know, then colonel. They would not have been happy about that. And, and so it would have been a very, very challenging time. I mean, it sounds simple. You see this man walking up toward you, and uh, he has captain's bars. He, he has the insignia indicating that he's a colonel. And if you're a private and you're from Alabama or Georgia or Mississippi, somewhere south of the Mason-Dixon, you're still supposed to salute. That is an officer. And I, don't, I, I wonder, and I think I've actually read that there probably were instances where they, there was a reluctant salute, a grudging you know, salute, because they felt they had to, but they didn't really want to. And you can pick up on that. You can pick up when someone really respects you and someone is feeling forced into some measure of, uh, uh, of respect. And I think, that all, I think the accumulation of all of that is very difficult. It has an erosive and a corrosive effect on one's sense of, of self-worth. Uh, it's just how race operates in our society. I think that sometimes it's not the, the, the big things like the Klan riding up to your house and setting fire to a cross. And yes, the big things are very bad. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But I think that a lot of uh, what is corrosive to one's character and sense of, of worth are all the little things, all the little slights. And these little slights add up and they have, a they have this cumulative impact. And the fact that Charles Young went through his professional life and he still maintained a sense, that sense of bearing and dignity and that this is not going to touch me. I know who I am. I know what I can do, and I'm going to do it. And I think it's, just, it's, it's very remarkable, and we just don't give enough credit to just how difficult a time it was you know, in, in, that, in that time period in which he was moving through the ranks of the military. Uh, to achieve what he achieved. It was just a remarkable thing that he did, and he just seemed to rise above that, and I think that's, uh, that's to be applauded. After closing your eyes to me So, of course, this is taking place in California. I sometimes wonder if, if you had taken Yosemite and Sequoia and put them in Alabama in the exact same time period, if it, if it could have even worked, you know? But a lot, a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was California. It wasn't Mississippi. You know, Mississippi does not house Yosemite. Alabama does not house Yosemite. You know, Louisiana is not the housing for Yosemite. California, you know, was that housing, that cultural context. Race definitely was a uh, a potent negative force in California as well. But uh, it had nothing on, on on the South because that that's that that was the battleground. That was the hundreds of years of of forced uh, of slavery, so that, that leaves a scar and it leaves an echo, it leaves resonance behind, and I think we're still living with that. 
uh, that resonance from those 400 years of slavery. Charles Young became so important to the community that by the end of the summer in 1903, Visalia residents wanted to name a giant tree after him. Young proposed instead to name a tree for somebody else, somebody more accomplished. In his words, that great and good American, Booker T. Washington. So, in 1903, they instead named a tree for Booker T. Washington. It was there that we found the only remaining artifact of the Buffalo soldiers on our entire trip. It was a small nail. It stuck in the bark of this giant sequoia. This is the only thing that links us to the Buffalo soldiers. A nail. We are back in front of the Booker T. Washington tree, here to see the nail. Uh, do you see it, Bonnie? No. Here, now we're approaching the tree. So if you get it close enough and look up, you can see this one kind of rusty nail just sticking out of the tree. And that's really the only physical evidence of the buffalo soldiers here. It's the thing that makes this like more than just a natural landscape, but a distinctly cultural one. She can't even take a picture of it. It held the sign that said, originally said Booker T. Washington tree. Hundred and one years after Young's superintendency, the park made good on its promise to name a tree after him. Officially, the park doesn't name trees anymore. Otherwise, we might end up with a Ronald Reagan tree, a Bill Clinton tree, who knows what kind of tree. It was the first tree to be named in over 60 years, which was a bold move for the parks. I think I understand why they went out of their way to name a tree for Charles Young. After all we'd been through to uncover the history of the Buffalo Soldiers, all we'd found was a nail. Given the general lack of newspaper articles and army records about their time in the parks, it seems important that we go out of our way to tell this story and give people something more meaningful to appreciate. The national parks and the idea of national parks is as much a cultural relic of our society as it is nature. It's not just natural, it is cultural. Every national park, no matter how wild it, it, it is, if it's in Alaska, if it's in the West, it doesn't matter. All of these parks are also have as, as great a value as a cultural entity as they do a natural entity. And we tend to forget that. We just tend to see it as, well, it's nature, it's wild, it's wilderness, and it's mountains and rivers and forests, but it's also an idea. When we set out on our road trip, I expected to see the same scenery that I had already seen before. To some extent, I did. The vistas in the parks are as spectacular as ever. The nail is still in the tree. But on this trip, I realized that every landscape is layered with years and years of history. And most of the time, we look without really seeing. Underneath the pavement is an old wagon road. Underneath the big box is an old army campsite. And over on the other side of the river is an overgrown arboretum. Hiding in that landscape are stories of Charles Young and the Buffalo Soldiers, some of our most visionary and humble stewards of the West. And in retracing the steps of the Buffalo Soldiers, maybe we came close to capturing their spirit. After Young left Sequoia, he wrote that he came to Sequoia with a heart full of bitterness and left it a different man with a better outlook. And I bet that a hundred years ago, the Buffalo Soldiers felt similar to the way I feel in those trees today. At rest, in awe, humbled. And we share that across space, 
time, culture, race, class, and all those other illusions that we sometimes let between us. The next morning, we packed the truck and started to head home. On the trip back to San Francisco, we didn't talk very much. I kept imagining that we were riding along the old road, going slow, taking our sweet autumn time. Justine Lai graduated from Stanford in 2008 and currently works for the National Park Service. I'm still at Stanford with the Storytelling Project. Next, storytelling producer Killeen Hansen tells us a story of her summer in the backcountry of Yosemite. It turns out it's more than just the mountains she comes to love. It's the mountain way of life among a mountain group of people. I remember laughing Matt scrambling over the boulders in the talus slope above camp. I remember John Corey wearing a plaid quilted skirt as he baked challah in the sunrise kitchen, and Babs dancing around the campfire in a purple leotard. I remember how Gary Finistad called every day in the mountains another day in paradise. And I remember Mookie and Thor and Ruth and Danielle. I remember Ranger Dave, or Danger Rave, and how he would tell us old Indian creation myths under the late-night banner of the Milky Way. These are the people, the characters even, the Yosemites, who danced with me around campfires, who bagged peaks before breakfast, who taught me to like whiskey, and who, more than anything else, made me fall in love with the life and the beauty of the Sierra Nevada. I spent a summer living and working with them in the backcountry of Yosemite National Park. I was jittery with excitement when I hiked into camp that first day of the summer, up the eight miles from the road on a stair-step trail. I would be spending the season at Vogelsang High Sierra Camp. All around me, gray granite slabs peeked up through the dark soil and the underbrush. I felt like I could see the bones of the world. The trail climbed first through the forest, meandered its way through the meadow, and then climbed once more along the face of the mountain. And no matter how long I'd been away, I loved seeing the white tops of our tent cabins and hearing the ring of the dinner bell as I topped that last rise to camp. At the beginning of the season, the trail to Vogelsang was verdant and lush and oh so green with patches of snow still surviving alongside the trail. As the weeks passed, the young grass turned gold and the streams and creeks dried up until there were only wide trails of round stones and polished boulders to mark where the water had once flowed. If you know what you're doing, you hike just off the trail, right on the firmer edge where the grass meets the sand. The other choice is to slog through the soft trail dust, following the footsteps of hundreds of laden mule trains carrying luggage and supplies. The first time I hiked into camp, I did it in two and a half hours, my excitement and anticipation making me move faster and faster. Later in the season, I moved more slowly, knowing that there was no hurry to get anywhere fast. The only high country clock that matters is the sun, and soon it seemed only natural to get up when it rose in the morning and go to sleep when it set. Thoreau really had something going when he wrote so famously, 
I left the woods for as good a reason as I went there. Perhaps it seemed to me that I had several more lives to live, and I could not spare any time for that one. How true that was for me. For a single golden summer, Yosemite was my Walden. I went there to live one life and returned three months later to live another. But if I were to be really honest with myself, I would say that I went to Yosemite for the daring of it. I wanted to do something really different, something that would have never fit into the suit jacket lives that so many of my friends had chosen. I wanted to be a part of epic stories and reckless adventures, to meet and laugh with mountain men and women, and to fill my imagination with the exploits and voices of colorful characters. I wanted permission to dream big, foolhardy, impossible dreams, and to believe, for a summer at least, that they might all come true. And so I fled to the mountains, and as it turns out, to the wild, wandering souls that live there. On one of my first weekends of the summer, I wandered down to Merced Lake, the next camp on the High Sierra Loop Trail. After eight miles through growing dusk of just me and the trail ahead, I wandered into camp. It was John Rogers' birthday party, and I could hear the cheerful rumble of voices and the happy shouting coming from the clearing on the other side of the river. As I rolled up my pant legs to ford the river, a figure stepped out of the shadows on the far bank and guided me across the most direct route. I stepped onto shore and I was gifted with an enormous smile of welcome from a perfect stranger and beckoned over to the giant bonfire crackling under the Cathedral of Redwoods. I dropped my pack, found a spot on a log between two people who scooted over to make room, and in a blink had a cold beer pressed into my hand and an arm slung over my shoulder. We swayed and sang to improvised tunes from a charmingly informal band, complete with ukulele, guitar, flute, and didgeridoo. The next morning, the crowd of partygoers slowly dispersed and started their long hikes back to their home camps. I wavered in my decision, torn equally between a desire to relax and explore Merced Lake a little further, or to make the 14-mile trek to Tuolumne Meadows and the barn dance later that evening. I was reading a dog-eared copy of The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, and sitting in the sun just outside the Merced Lake kitchen. And as I was sitting there, John Corey left the kitchen with a sandwich in hand turning to me and saying, in a tone that took the answer as a given, Killeen, you're coming with us. Get your bags packed. We'll be heading up the hill when you're ready. I had only been in Yosemite for a few short weeks and had barely acclimated to the elevation, much less found my place in this oddball group of mountain men and women. And here was John Corey, a legendary character in the backcountry, asking me, by name, to join him on his hike back up the mountain. Of course I would go. I startled up from my chair in the sun, stuffed my poor, beat-up book back into my pocket, donned the pack, and stood at the ready. And off we went, John playing the ukulele as we ambled alongside the river, Ruth stopping with me every time I needed to take a break, Alex billy-goating up the trail ahead of us. We would find him perched pensively on a rock or log waiting for us to catch up. Occasionally, the others would take sips out of their Nalgenes. Nalgenes, I might add that were filled with whiskey instead of water. 
A note about hiking with people who live in the high country. That hike that day, up the hill, as John Corey called it, was nothing less than a nine-mile climb up some 3,000 feet. As the summer progressed and I earned my high country legs, I too would call that hike a walk up the hill. Soon I would think of nothing of setting out five or eight miles for an afternoon jaunt. I learned that day, too, that the infamous high country shortcut meant going up and over something steep instead of taking the long way around. Shorter, perhaps, as the bird flies, but definitely no quicker. And I might add, far more painful. That night, exhausted from our day's hiking, I sat in the shadows at a picnic table outside the barn offices and watched the crowd. The stables were bedecked with twinkle lights that made the inside rafters glow with the party spirit. The bales of hay had been moved out of the way to make room for a dance floor, and indeed there were dozens of people swinging and line dancing, hopping from partner to partner with grins the size of Half Dome. I could see Ranger Dave in all his glory two-stepping with Danielle, who was dressed to kill in a polka-dotted thrift store masterpiece that reminded me of Minnie Mouse. It was a true barn dance, cowboys in polished boots and neatly tucked plaid shirts tipping their Stetsons at you as you walked by. The women were bedecked in colorful outfits from every era, and it made me smile to see the twirl of skirts as they swung on the dance floor. Fresh sunny-side eggs and toast for breakfast the next morning, and I was on my way, heading back up the trail towards home. Well, it's always we ramble. My Yosemite friends are gypsies. They'll save money from a summer season working in the park and slowly spend it over the course of the next year. Perhaps they'll go to Argentina. They might even stay on in the park for the winter, cooking dinners or waiting tables to earn a little more cash. On the weekends, they'll head for the backcountry and the open trails. They are eager to be moving and antsy when caught in one place for too long. The most interesting people I know are those who have taken the circuitous route from point A to point B, but by golly, they've seen the world in between. Those who never waver from the path, on the other hand, and who know exactly what they want, also earn my admiration. They have a certainty about themselves that guides them safely and directly. But a part of me wonders, are they perhaps, these ambitious, motivated people, missing something? Is it not possible that by taking the long way around, they might have found something that they care about more than what they currently did? Before the summer, I wouldn't have been sure of the answer. Yet after the summer, after the people I met, I learned that there is not only a beauty in always searching and moving from one place to another, from one job to another, but that there is a dignity in living a life so rich and varied. Cause my past years of plenty must always be free. Green the people I met in Yosemite lived every day with that enthusiasm. It is a simple and spontaneous twirling dervish of passion for every new day. The barn dance, for example, a gathering around a bonfire with friends old and new, or a swig of whiskey on a mountain trail. These were the ties that bind in the backcountry. During those ten weeks that I lived in the dusty wilderness, doing manual labor and showering but once or twice a week, I have never felt more consistently beautiful or confident. I was me, just me and there is nothing to hide or be ashamed of. I'm afraid of ever living without a safety net. And a weight, I must admit, was lifted from my shoulders 
to know that I had a good and worthwhile job to return to when I left the mountains. Many of the people I met there didn't have a clue as to what they were going to do for more than two months in advance. And I find, accepting my worries about the future, that this roving lifestyle is magnetically appealing. One day, maybe I too will be able to take whatever opportunity may cross my path and have nothing to tie me down. I wish I could follow my slightest whim, whether it be foolhardy or inspired, and remain confident that all would turn out well. But I am aware that the world is not always kind to the unprepared. It is this awareness that goads me to look ahead and plan for my future. It may change, certainly, but the practice of thinking about the big picture is invaluable. I wondered about my Yosemite friends as I filled out my 401k plan for the first time and navigated the maze of job benefits and rent payments. What is their life like, unencumbered by these obligations? Do they ever worry at night that one day everything might not just work out? And do they ever miss the quiet comfort of a home to return to each night? It seems like another world from this one here, where I am writing this essay on a computer, at a desk, in my quiet room. And to be honest, I miss terribly the blissful glow of contentment and acceptance that I felt sitting around that fire only a few months ago. The flickering orange glow of the fire on laughing faces the slowly emptying bottle of whiskey that got passed around and around the circle, the spontaneous rallying cries to go jump in the river, the confidence to lean back comfortably against the knees of someone I had never met, and the bubble of fierce love welling up inside of me for those independent souls who had the courage to be honest to themselves. Killeen Hansen is a producer for the Stanford Storytelling Project and graduated from Stanford in 2008. Our final piece today is a poem by Peter Klein. It's about a special kind of wild California tree. Manzanita. Little apple, mountain driftwood littering the flash fire chaparral, impassable interlocker, toey coral, fertile ash. If I were the designer, I'd have drawn it taller, just enough to leave room for me beneath its kinked copper wire lightning rods. And wider leafed, its lichen green more suitably skewed to intercept whirls of drifting rain so fine I breathe it in. But how it thrives in the oil-slick soils and skid-rock gullies flanking the canyon highways above Half Moon Bay. Minor, ornamental, unfit for timbering, ideal for aquaria, parrot perches, patio sculpture, barbecues. We know its uses.
Peter Klein is a first-year Stegner Fellow at Stanford. Today's program was produced by Jonah Willingans and myself, Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Justine Lai, Shelton Johnson, Ward Eldridge, Colleen Hansen, and Peter Klein, and to Liz Bradfield for her help in gathering material. Original music for the show was written by Noah Burbank. The music in the Buffalo Soldier segment was written by The Microphones, Mount Erie, and Kate Wolfe. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would also like to thank the offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. This week, we have a supplemental poem and interview with Peter Klein by storytelling poetry editor Liz Bradfield, posted with the podcast of our show. Tune in on Thursday after the break and we'll hear stories about arc rivals, doppelgangers, and the most famous adversary of all time on Nemesis. For the Stanford Storytelling Project and KZSU Stanford, I'm Bonnie Swift. The Almond Orchard. The design is wise, I know. The crowns grow just so wide to ease the tree shaker's passage. Narrow pipes miser the water. Even light cooperates. Even the wind winds elsewhere. From Highway 5, the green corridors swing shut, swing shut, swing shut. They disappear at any other angle. Like a forest, they tangle the eyes' incursions. Their one green is an obsession. It's now midsummer. Soon the bitterness will mellow. The first shell will split open to the hush of the never rainfall. You'll find it by these markers the fallen billhook, and the sheen of poison. Can you talk about why, in looking at the West, you turn to plants, and why these plants in particular? Uh, sure. Well, uh, the first poem, uh, The Almond Orchard, comes out of when I lived in Los Angeles um, several years ago and would drive as often as I could up to San Francisco. Um, and so, of course, you take Highway 5, and you see this kind of majestic vision of 
the power of American agriculture, I guess, or else some days you might think of it as an apocalyptic vision mm-hmm. of the power of American agriculture. And uh, there are these beautiful almond trees um, for long stretches, and in certain seasons uh, they'll be flowering, and it's just it's just gorgeous. And yet it's all so planned and so rigid. And so I, I did a little research about it and, and was reading about an accident in which uh, some migrant workers had been um, made seriously ill by being crop dusted accidentally. And so that's uh, those two things, that newspaper article I read, and, and then my experience of driving by is, is what the poem came out of. Um, and so uh, why plants in particular? Um, I think uh, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and so um, the plants of California are are very unusual to me. The orchards of where I grew up are all apple orchards and, and things like that. So it's the first time I'd ever seen almond orchards. And the manzanita tree, I just think, is exquisite in its its beauty, almost as if it were designed for for ornamental purposes for humans. Um, but you know, obviously, that's not the case. So. I, that's what I was struck by with that. Yeah, and the, the almonds in particular are interesting because um, there's such a particularly Californian West image. And also in that weird slippage, Far Eastern, you know? The, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And that connection is so interesting, I, which leads me to ask you, I guess, um, in in your gut reaction, real quick, here's what I think of idea of West. What's West? Mm, that's... That's a very difficult question. Uh, I mean, I always saw California as a place of freedom, um, as a place to live the life that you maybe couldn't have lived somewhere else. And so how that relates to the landscape, though, I'm not exactly sure. But uh, So California is west. I, I guess California is west, yeah. yeah. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the southwest, too. But when I think of west, I th- always think of California. How long did you live in L.A.? For three years, yeah. Was that for school or? Nope, just uh, just to live there. And I'm really interested, especially in the pairing of the poems of the um, the cultivated almonds, and then the wild manzanita, which is such a particular and beautiful, as you say, um, shrub, bush, tree. I mean, <laughs> everything. Yeah. Yeah, everything. Um, can you talk a little bit about ideas of? Um, wildness or cultivation in the West, just generally or impressionistically? Sure. Well, well, with the, with the manzanita, it, it struck me for, for reasons, like I said, because it does seem so designed. It seems like exactly what a person would want from a tree that they'd put in their yard. It has gorgeous contrast between the trunk and, and the leaves, and it's it's just so striking and sinuous and it's the way it grows. Um, and yet it grows wild here. It, it's found, you know, it's most natural in places of poor soil and you don't have to do much to, to make it grow. I, I don't know. I guess California, I see as the place where almost everything grows. Um, it's, it's almost Edenic in that way. Um, you know, if you bring a little water in, you can make practically anything grow here, it seems. And so, and that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing. But again, there's always, always the downside with, uh, you know, issues of, of migrant workers, of pesticides, of uh, water use, of all these things, which, you know, you have to consider when you consider how, how wonderful 
it is that, that so many things can be grown here. I'm really interested um, by the end of Manzanita in particular that um, we we know its uses, which echoes for me. And um, because I think for me, when I hear that, what the poem is telling me is that we really don't. Like in uses in what way? Uses in practical ways. You'd go over that. Can you read that last stanza and then? Sure. Minor, ornamental, unfit for timbering, ideal for aquaria, parrot perches, patio sculpture, barbecues. We know its uses. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, when I was just looking into... Uh, looking into kind of what it's used for, uh, what what people tend to do with it, um, I, I came across a, a whole list of things, including ideal for throwing it in your aquarium or, you know, burns great in the barbecue. And it, it just seemed for such a, a beautiful tree that it could end up as a parrot perch. And, um, you know, and, and those are all legitimate human uses. I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. We need places to put our parrots, but it seemed almost outrageous um, that something so beautiful could be reduced that way, I guess. And I think the poem, in the end, for me, it, is, it escapes all of that by saying we know its uses, because I think for me, when I hear that, I think, well, we don't really know what use the world has for the tree. And it, I love that expansion out at the end of the poem. I think that's great. Exactly. That's what I was what I was going for. Um, we know our uses, but we, don't, we have no idea about what its real use is. Yeah. I'm also a little bit curious uh, to hear you talk about the speaker in these poems because there's an I briefly in both of them, um, but it's almost more like the poems um, are spoken from just this stance of personless observation. You know, they have an opinion and they have an aesthetic, but it's not about necessarily an individual's experience of what they're looking at, but it's about the thing in the world. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, the eye in these poems, I think, is more like a conscience than it is anything else. Um, like you say, it doesn't have an existence in the world. There's no, I was walking down the street one day and I saw this. Um, it's much more removed from experience than that. But it's uh, it's meant to designate uh, a consciousness and, and also a conscience that informs um, these observations, I guess, as a way to bring people in relation to to these natural ideas, um, to bring a, a particular person in relation to them. I'm curious, have you ever written poems about um, apple orchards? You mentioned them earlier as a Pennsylvania thing. Strangely, I, I don't believe I have, except... Uh, um, my, uh, my mother grew up in... Uh, her grandfather owned an orchard um, of all kinds of fruit trees, and so I think they've come into the poems that way. But uh, I've never visited those orchards. I've never even seen them. As far as I know, I think they were gone by the time I was uh, I was born, and so they exist almost in an idealized state for me, not not in any one that I've experienced. It seems to me almost is that moving to a new place, and especially California, which, as you said, is so dominated by agriculture and growth and potential and devastation um that the that kind of botanical wildness of this place is just something that sings out more than it might in another place for you i'm wondering i'm guessing i'm asking yeah 
the, all the it seems like all the wild places in in Pennsylvania, at least right around where I grew up. Um, certainly not all of them, but and that even includes uh, cornfields, um, which of course aren't wild at all, but still. Um, just growing things. Um, all of those have been replaced by strip malls um, mm. around where I grew up, um, and every year there's more. Um, and so maybe in some ways California is a, a place where there's less of that, at least for now. Um, and it's such a big state also, I think, that you can leave Los Angeles and still, um, you know, it takes a long time to get out of it. But once you get out... Uh, <laughs> you can find that there are um, all kinds of different landscapes, all kinds of um, amazing things that haven't yet been paved over. Um, are there uh, are there poets that you look to as writers of place? Bishop comes to mind immediately. Um, you think of a poem like At the Fish Houses, um, you know, a wonderful poem where landscape exists fully as a realized space, and yet it's also... A place of philosophical inquiry or, or intellectual inquiry, and I think that's a lot of what I see as, as landscape doing, at least in in my poems. Um, it's a I don't know whether certain ideas naturally gravitate towards certain landscapes, or whether these things are just kind of artificially or, or arbitrarily imposed by the poet. But um, I think we all respond to them or, or at least a lot of us can respond to the idea that s certain certain ideas certain philosophies are somehow embedded into the landscape itself that they arise naturally from certain landscapes mm -hmm. yeah i see that yeah thank you thank you